Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're about to hear a message from our Wednesday night Solid Rock Youth Group service. Solid Rock is a ministry of Living Word Family Church, and if you'd like to know more, check us out on our website at www.livingwordfamily.org. What is a martyr? M-A-R-T-Y-R. Someone who dies for a cause. It's pretty good. Follow-up question. Was Jesus a martyr? Did Jesus die a martyr's death? Yes or no? Who said no? Anybody want to say yes? No, no, no. That's fine. That's good. One no and a bunch of apparently I don't know. So everybody thinks they're walking into a trap. Uh, another question. Remember what it was. What's the purpose of baptism? How many of you have been baptized? Why did you get baptized? Who's already answered? You've already answered. A bunch of people went through a very important uh, sacrament, depending on what your background is. I would say ordinance. And you don't know what you did it for. Congratulations. Can... In your opinion, can you be a world-class, top-notch scientist and be a Christian at the same time? Or are science and Christianity eternally locked in combat? Yes. I'm seeing some. Yes, you can, and no, it's not. I, I, I would tend to agree with that. What is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement? What is the Trinity? Not, don't tell me who they are. Tell me what it is. Keep those questions in mind. I'm not going to answer them tonight. And I could go on. There's a, several, several questions I would like to just throw at you. But I was raised in a church uh, right here in St. Joe. I was, it, was out, it was a Methodist church, I'll tell you, because I still like that church. I'm not trying to bash them or anything. And... I was raised in a home. This is super important. I was raised from the time I could remember anything to believe that God is real, the Bible is true, and therefore, since the Bible is true, not only is God real, but the devil's real, heaven's real, heaven, uh, hell's real. Uh, all the things the Bible talks about, I just took for granted, really happened. Uh, we went to Sunday school every Sunday. We went to church every Sunday. And my mom used to read to us these Bible stories. And I took, it wasn't like it was, I can't say that it was always the central part of my life, but it was always part of my life. And uh, I remember thinking about God and talking about God. Cheryl can remember, you know, little things. My mom pulled this stunt one time where she, you remember this? The story where mom was like, Scotty, she's, Cheryl and I are playing out in the front yard. We're real little, four or five years old, I think. And uh, Mom is hiding in the kitchen, yelling through the screen door, Scotty, Scotty. And I said, Cheryl, did you hear God? It was a possibility to me. It was a voice I didn't recognize. And I knew God was invisible. And this is something that's, if you've heard my testimony, you've heard this part. I had, because I'd read about them, I'd never seen one, never been through one, but I was, I was terribly frightened of tornadoes, because I read a weekly reader 
article about tornadoes, and then I read a book about tornadoes, and I was terrified every time it got windy and dark, and then about the time my fear reached its peak, we move out into the middle of the country where you could see for miles around. You could see those tornadoes coming for across the state. And then when it got stormy, especially if Dad wasn't home yet, it was scary, and it just terrified me to think about tornadoes. Why? I don't know. Active imagination. And so I asked my Sunday school teacher, why? Now let me back up for a second. I said my prayers. Do you guys say your prayers at night? They used to say that at night. Go, go to bed. Don't forget to say your prayers. And so every night I would pray something similar to this. Thank you. Thank you for my day. Please keep me safe tonight. Bless mom, bless dad, bless my sisters. And uh, please don't let there be any tornadoes. And so I asked my Sunday school teacher, why does God let there be tornadoes? If God's a good God and God can do anything, why does he allow tornadoes? And she said to me, anybody remember the answer to this question, what she told me? Anybody ever listened to my testimony before? She told me, there's some things God just can't do anything about. And I believed her, because why wouldn't I? She's my teacher, I'm eight years old. I asked her this question, and, and I, but I'm, it, sh it shook me. I wouldn't have put it this way at that age, but looking back, what it did was it tilted my worldview. I went into that Sunday school class knowing that God was God and could do anything. I just wondered what his motive was in allowing tornadoes. And she told me he couldn't do anything about that. I'm, suddenly God's not omnipotent anymore. So then I would go to bed and I'd say, Dear God, please bless Mommy and Daddy and my sisters, and please don't let there be any tornadoes. But if there are tornadoes, please don't let me die since he couldn't do anything about tornadoes. And then, all by myself, I made this huge philosophical leap where I realized if God couldn't stop a tornado, he might not be able to stop me from dying. So I prayed, please bless mommy and daddy and my sisters, please don't let there be any tornadoes, but if, there's not a, but if there is a tornado, please don't let me die. But if I die, please let me go to heaven. And this is what tortured me, is I knew that there could be a tornado, and I could die in it, and I was either going to heaven or hell, and I wanted so badly to believe I was going to heaven, but I just didn't know. And so when somebody explained the plan of salvation to me, that you could know, that this was the best news, was that you could know before you died. Whether I was mishearing it or not paying attention, I don't remember it ever coming from the pulpit, somebody telling me, here is how you get to heaven, which is all I cared about at that point. I wasn't looking for a discipleship program. I just wanted the assurance. And when I finally heard this, and well, actually, it didn't sink in until I was nearly 12 years old. But the second it sunk in, the second I understood that, I wasn't going to wait for another church service. I curled up in a ball in a chair, and I prayed, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart and forgive my sins and be my Lord and Savior. And I slept better that night than I ever had in my life. So I was born again. I was saved. Uh, about a month before my 12th birthday. And when did the tornado come through, Cheryl? Right after that? The following year. Less than a year later, actually, lived through a vicious tornado that destroyed our house. No, it didn't, but I saw it. Anyway, um, I'll say that this, that I would like to say my life changed and I was filled with a hunger to read the Bible all the time, but it didn't. The main change in my life for the next several years 
was simply an urgency to see my friends get saved. Since I knew that I had now had the assurance of heaven, I could hardly stand it not having the assurance that my friends were going to heaven. So I would beg them to pray, to ask Jesus into their heart to get saved. I knew nothing other than what the you know, Sunday school lessons. I knew nothing about applying biblical truth. I just knew that if you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, uh, Lord Jesus Christ and God raised him from the dead, you'd be saved. And I just wanted them to say the words so that I could sleep better on their behalf. We moved to Oklahoma my freshman year because uh, my, my dad was going to Bible school. Big school, much bigger town than I was accustomed to. This is when St. Joe was only 1,600 people officially. And we moved into a town where my freshman and sophomore class had their own school and there were 2,000 students. And it was kind of freaky. But we had great church and there were all these special events. So I heard a lot of the word. I got filled with the Holy Spirit when we lived down in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And then when we moved back, for my junior year, we moved back the summer before my junior year of high school, and I had this idea that I was going to be the only serious Christian, other than my family, the only serious Christian in, in, in the high school. I just couldn't imagine anybody had had that much word pumped into them uh, for the last two years. And it was kind of a Messiah complex, you know, it's going to be up to me, and how am I going to live? You know, it was, it was a little bit of a crisis because I was not always uh, a very outgoing guy. I've always been very private, very solitary. I always wanted to have one or two friends. That's all I ever needed. Uh, but I wasn't the most social guy. But, you know, going in, now it's kind of like starting over. We come, because, as you know, if you came up through this school system, you've got St. Joseph grade school and you've got what other grade schools that then come to high school. You've got Ogden, you've got uh, Prairie View Ogden. And so then when I came back from my junior year, there were all these kids I didn't know, and I'm, I'm kind of the new kid. But right before school started, I'm driving down the street, and I see a guy dribbling a basketball that I recognize. His name is Jeff Canfield. And uh, he's a kid I'd known since kindergarten year. We'd been in each other's classes several times. Jeff was kind of a class clown back in grade school. And uh, I can remember in fourth grade, we hung out a lot because we were in the same class. In seventh grade, we hung out a lot because we were in the same homeroom. Uh, but we didn't we didn't maintain, he wasn't a guy I wrote letters to when we were in Oklahoma, but he was the first guy I saw that I recognized, so I pulled up in my car and said, hey man, need a ride. He hopped in, and within 30 seconds, because he said, hey, where have you guys been the last two years? I told him, and he starts asking questions, so within 30 seconds, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Bible. And he became my best friend, and for the, especially for the next two years, uh, his friendship was kind of a, a lifeline, an anchor for me. I, I can't say, I would like to say, looking back, that no matter what, I would have lived for Jesus, I would have confessed Christ, I would have been an example, but I got to tell you, having one Christian friend in my life made all the difference in the world. Now, I had other friends. We had a big, got, you know, by the time into high school, there were several of us, you know, we, we, we actually led several people to the Lord at school, at work, at IGA, uh, there was kind of a joke there for a while that anybody that came to work at IGA, especially if you came as a bagger, uh, you were going to get saved because people would just get saved in the break room. We'd just share the gospel all the time. And not that we were choir boys. We did stupid stuff too. I, just, I always, always want to specify that or, or make, make it clear that if I could go back, there's a thousand things I'd do different. I'm not proud of everything I did. But we were bold witnesses for Christ. And having an ally in that environment really does make all the difference when you know you're not the only one. Um, 
And then after high school, uh, things continued pretty much the same. Same friends, same kind of lifestyle for the first year. I didn't go anywhere for college, stuck around here, went to Parkland, and uh, uh, joined the National Guard right after my freshman year of college. And uh, went to, so I went to basic training that summer, came back, got into officer training at the U of I, and then began what I, I, I call now, kind of half-jokingly, my... Uh, I borrowed this phrase from a guy whose name I can't remember, but the, my vagabond years. For about five years where I really didn't have any direction. I was going to school. I was working pretty much full-time. I was trying to have a full-time social life. And I was doing everything the Army would let me do. As if they had a school come open, I applied for it and went to it. So something always had to give. There, just was, there weren't enough hours in the day or the week. And so when, when things got too crowded, school was always the thing that took the back seat. Dropped out a couple times. And uh, like every other 20-year-old, thought I had all the time in the world. You know, what's the rush? And then one day I wake up, I'm 25 years old, and it's like, where, you know, where, the, last, uh, where the last five years of my life go? It's all kind of stupid. But I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to mention two things. I would meet people, especially at Parkland. Uh, they had a vibrant Christian ministry there called Parkland Christian Fellowship. And I met people who came to the Lord at Parkland. So they're brand new Christians. So by this time, I'd been a Christian for seven, eight years. And I would meet people who'd been a Christian for three months who would come up and ask me questions like, did Jesus die a martyr's death? To quiz me. Uh, and I'd be like, yeah, kind of. No, he didn't. His death was a death of substitutionary atonement. He died to give his life as a ransom for many. These guys knew their scriptures and they knew their theology better than I did. Now I came, and I'm standing on my, well, I've led more people to the Lord than you have. But I couldn't, I couldn't disciple them. I didn't know answers to the basic questions of my belief system. So it challenged me. So I started getting better at it on purpose. But here is, I'm going I'm to tie that together with one more thing, if I can squeeze it in here. Like I said, I was kind of raised in the faith. The born-again message, the message of receiving Christ on your own, becoming a Christian, conversion, whatever, that didn't sink in again until I was nearly 12. But I had always had it uh, reinforced at home and in church and in Sunday school that God was real, the Bible was real, all this is true. I never questioned that. Until, fast forward now to 1987, and I'm at my officer basic course. This was my, personally, my longest stint of active duty, five months of, of officer training after my commissioning. I was an officer. This wasn't training to be an officer. That was ROTC. I got my commission. I actually served as a lieutenant for nearly two years before I went to this branch qualification course, infantry officer basic course, back down to Fort Benning, where I had done basic training. And... Uh, it was that time that I probably lived my most worldly life. And part of it was just the busyness of the schedule. It was, uh, I went to uh, church, I think, maybe one time in five months. I didn't know where to go to church. I went, I visited one, I didn't like it. And it was always just like, man, I've only got about a day and a half off a week. 
I need extra food, I need extra sleep, I'm just going to take off. It wasn't really a conscious decision, it's just when Sundays rolled around, nobody else was going. I had one friend from St. Joe who was in the class ahead of me. We would link up on weekends, we wanted to spend as much time together as possible. And so I really, I kind of backslid. I'll say I did, I don't say I kind of backslid, I backslid. I wasn't doing any Bible reading, I just wasn't thinking about it, it was terrible. Looking back, it was terrible. When I was doing it, I was in a fog, and I was busy, and I was enjoying the school, and I was enjoying meeting these guys. I went through a, a, this class with mostly West Pointers, and it was kind of a cool thing to get to know these guys. And then one night, we're out on this long field exercise. That's typically what they do. We'd spend a week in the classroom. It's called a gentleman's course. And we weren't getting dropped for push-ups all the time. This was, we're officers, okay, officers and gentlemen. So... We'd go out for PT in the morning, then we'd go get breakfast, then we'd go to class all day, and then go home, we'd have the nights off, start all over. And then after a week in the classroom, we would go out to the field and practice what we learned in the classroom. So, we'd, uh, so we were out there for a long exercise called the, the, the defense, where we had to dig fighting positions, what you civilians call foxholes. Uh, Two-man fighting positions, camouflage, cover, everything else, and then wait to be attacked by an opposing force. This is all with blanks, okay? Nobody's life was really in danger, except from accidents. And I got put into what was called a, a listening post, or observation post, LPOP they called them. Me and another guy, where we sat in a hole about 50 meters in front of the main line of defense, just to watch. And our job, we were sitting there with a field phone with a wire that ran back to the command post, and our job was just to watch, to see if anybody was coming through those trees across the field so that we could give them just a little advance warning. So we could say, here they come, and we're coming back first so that they don't shoot us. Our whole job was just to spot them a few minutes earlier, and then we'd hang up the phone, and then we'd run back to our fighting position and then meet them. But they'd be ready, because you're always watching, but you know, this gave the guys behind us a chance to get a little more rest. But it's a two-man position because we're going to be out there all night, and so we take turns sleeping. And uh, it got cold that night. Down, this is down in Georgia, but it's getting later in the year. And the temperature dropped, and so this, this truck came through about midnight and starts throwing sleeping bags off the truck for us because nobody brought, brought one into the field. They're just too much to carry. So I said, you can sleep in this and just leave them. We'll, we'll police them up later. And uh, I said, just leave one. And the guy with me says, what? Why? I said, because the guy who's awake doesn't need one. It's better to be cold. It'll keep you awake. If, if we both have sleeping bags, uh, you know, the guy who's supposed to be awake is going to fall asleep. Well, this guy happened to be on watch. It was his turn. It was my turn to sleep. He goes, no, no, I want one. I won't fall asleep. All right. Guess what he did? He fell asleep. And he wakes up with a rifle right in his face and me with a rifle right in mine. I was sleeping too, but I was supposed to be sleeping. He wasn't. So they wake us up rudely. They cut our phone line so that we can't warn the people behind us. And they said, you guys just sit here quietly while we go attack the guys behind you. And they did. And we all get chewed out. We got chewed out for letting it happen. There's our after action review. Now it's four or five in the morning. And all right, everybody go back to your position. So I'm sitting there in my hole just thinking. Action's over. Just waiting for sun up. And I'm just sitting here thinking about this. I'm frustrated. I'm mad at the, the guy who's with me. But I'm also thinking, this is just training. It's low speed. But... At the time, 1987, remember, what we're gearing up for is World War III against Russia. We just know that someday the Soviet army is going to come rolling across the Fulda Gap in Germany and 
next thing you know, we're going to be in World War III, and it's all, our, all we can do is try to, we can beat them on the ground, but if, if, if it turns into a nuclear war, that's it. Everybody's dead. And I remember thinking, do I really believe in my mission enough? You know, I always wanted to be an officer because I figured if I, if, I, if I died in combat, I'd rather die because of something I did rather than following an order of somebody that was stupider than me. Just kind of a control freak thing. But I remember sitting there thinking, I'm willing to die for my country. And I'm a young man, I'm 23 years old, thinking this. And I'm willing to die for my country because, after all, there's heaven on the other side of this. And then, for the first time in my life, and this idea came full-blown into my head, how do you know there's a heaven? How do you know this isn't all there is? I was, I mean, it, it, it wasn't this creeping sensation. It was full-blown doubt that had never, in 23 years, I had never experienced. Oh. How do I know there's a heaven? And this is all happening very rapidly in my mind now. And I'm thinking, well, because the Bible says so. How do you know the Bible's true? How do you know God is real? And I realized in a thought process that only took about 15 seconds that everything I believed, I believed because somebody had told me. People I trusted. I had no, it was a childlike belief. At 23 years old, here I was, believing things that I still believe are the right things to believe, but I didn't have the right reasons for believing them. But it shook me, because then all of a sudden, then I'm afraid. I'm like, I don't want to go to war. I don't want to die at age 23 if this is all there is. I want to live long. I want to enjoy the whole life if this is all, all the only life there is, and I want to, I want to do anything risky. And a uh, month later, I was home. And uh, the Army was very generous to officers, and I came home with more money than I'd ever had in my life. Didn't have a lot of opportunity to spend it when I was at Benning. So I took a semester off. Instead of going back to school, I just worked a little bit. Didn't even go back to work full-time. I didn't need to. Took about a four-month vacation. And uh, I read, and I read, and I read. I hung out with friends. I, you know, socialized and stuff. And again, I worked. I just didn't work a ton. But every night, I would read, read, read until the wee hours of the morning. And what I read was anything I could get my hands on to answer the questions I had. How do I know God is real? Basic stuff. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of it back then, not like there is today. But I will say that three or four months of reading, really less than that, is all it took. All I needed was the assurance. Uh, I didn't need to be taught what to believe. I didn't need it to be taught Christianity from starting at A and going all the way through Z. I just needed shoring up on the reasons it was okay to believe this stuff. This is where I need to land with you guys tonight. There's, a, there's three or four different strands we could go from there. But, it's, but I want you to understand that if you were raised in a Christian home, Personally, I believe there's going to come a moment in your life where you can call it a crisis of faith if you want. It doesn't have to be a crisis, and it doesn't have to be this fearful moment like I have. But something will happen, or you will reach a point where something's going to have to make you come to a crossroads where you say, all right, this is no longer my parents' faith. This is no longer what I believe because of what I've been taught. 
It's what I believe because I know it's true. Jacob in the Old Testament gives us a beautiful picture of this back in Genesis where when he leaves his father and he's going to a, to a far country, not a far country, but he's, he's going to live in another land with distant relatives. And uh, he has a dream where he sees these angels going up and down this ladder. And then he says, he prays and he says, uh, God, if you will bring me back, if you will bless me on my journey and bring me back here safely, you will be my God. And he's gone for 20 years, 20 or 21 years. He comes back with his wives, his children. He's an old man. It's hard to picture this because it doesn't give you the ages, but if you do the math, when he comes back, he's 80 years old. And he comes back, and he's fearful because his brother, the last time he saw his brother 20 years ago, his brother swore to kill him. And his brother's a strong man. And his brother has a large family. And he's got animals and everything else. And his big moment is, am I going to be at peace when I come to meet Esau? And he does. His brother embraces him. Welcome home, brother, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes back to where he made this vow. And there's this rock he put there. Where This is where he made this vow. And he, he puts there uh, a, a, a post that says, God of Israel, which is his, his new name. He's fulfilling his vow. 20 years ago, he says, you'll be my God. Now he says, you are my God. You know he's God. Someday, and this may have already happened for some of you, I, and I believe most of you in this room have already made a profession of faith. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you're not saved until that moment. I'm saying even though God heard my prayer at age 12. He saved me at age 12. I didn't lose my salvation sitting in that foxhole. But I doubted it for the first time, and I had to wonder, and I had to own that faith and make, he's not just my, my parents' God. He's not just my, my uh, personal community's God. He's my God. He's my Lord. And something will happen. Hopefully, I'm not saying it needs to be a tragic or something scary, but you will come to a moment where you have to own that faith. And you have to say, when somebody says, why do you believe this? Your answer is going to have to be something other than it's what I was always taught. Because if that's your reason, if you believe what you believe because you've been taught by your parents, if you believe what you believe because you've been taught that at church, you will be challenged, college and workplace, just by society in general. And they'll throw stupid questions at you. Like, uh, you know, the reason I asked about baptism. And you've, you've probably seen some of these things. They're almost cartoonish descriptions of Christianity. Christianity is the belief that some magic man in the sky sent his zombie son to teach us to half drown ourselves so we can be washed away of some imaginary disease caused sin. And that we'll all live happily ever after in the sky with our sky daddy. Is that a description of Christianity? It's not. But that's how they want to portray it. And when they come at you with that, say, is that really what you believe? Well, no. Well, do you believe in the biblical God, because that's the magic man in the sky. How does God do these things? What does Jesus dying a martyr's death 2,000 years ago have to do with me sinning? And who gets to define what sin is anyway? Why? Uh, why is it okay for you to believe the Bible, but it's not okay for somebody else to, do, to believe their holy book? You know, this is the big thing they're, they're really going to come at us with, is the whole tolerance issue. You're not allowed to say anybody's wrong for the way they live, or the way they believe, or anything else. I'm almost done. The last song we sang in there, where it says, you love me too much to leave me here, 
Have you ever heard somebody say, a God of love would never condemn me? Or anything like that? A God of love would never judge me? Say God loves me like I am, so why do Christians always want to change me? Why do they tell me I want to, that I have to change? I believe in a God who accepts me, who loves me like I am. Now, do you believe what we sang in that song, that God loves you just as he finds you? I do. But now picture this. Picture a, a billionaire. And through whatever means, whatever contrived story you want to make up, he meets a woman who is dirt poor. Doesn't have a pot to pee in, as, as they say, right? I mean, she is, she's not just economically disadvantaged. She's poor. But they meet, and in conversation he discovers, I've never felt a connection with anybody like I have with this woman. She, she'll, she's the fulfillment of all my desire. And so he proposes to her. And she says yes, because she's attracted to him too. She's looking at him thinking, I can't believe that a man like this doesn't have better options than me, but he loves me. I'd be a fool to pass this up. Who, on the surface, gets the better end of that deal? Who benefits more from that relationship? The rich man or the poor woman? The poor woman. Why? She's not poor anymore. Wait a second. But he loved her when she was poor. So why, she ha why, why can't she just stay poor? Hmm? But would she be silly if he says, guess what? Now that you're my wife, you're going to wear different clothes. You're going to have hot and cold running water. You're going to live in a mansion. Would it be foolish of her to say, wait a second. I was poor when you met me, and now you want me to be rich? Why do you want to change me? Bingo. And she'd be an idiot for taking that line, wouldn't she? What if it was somebody who was terribly, terribly sick and the world's greatest doctor falls in love with her? And he is such a great doctor that he absolutely can cure her, but he falls in love with her when she's sick. Does she have a... Would she expect then that this fabulous doctor loves me? He's going to heal me? Would that be a reasonable expectation? Yeah. What if he turned to her and said, no, I fell in love with you when you're sick. I want you to stay sick. I love you just the way you are. Don't change. But see, we look at our sin and we say, God, you love me just like I am. Or we tell other people, God loves me just like I am. Don't ask me to change. God says, oh, I love you just like you are. So I want you out of that. We see it as him taking something from us, a privilege from us. He sees it as delivering us from those things into something better. The only difference between those illustrations and the way it is with God and us is we can't see that. We can only see our perspective. God sees our perspective and his. Stand up.